mustard and the rye bread, Grandma, because it's Remember That Guy, the podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present, and I am once again one of your hosts, James. I am your other co-host, Diaz, and I'm going to introduce the special guest this time because I can't believe we got this person. Mina Kimes, welcome to the podcast. Wait, where'd Mina go? Ah. All right, well, hold on. We're, I, yeah, I do not see her anywhere. We're, we're gonna we're gonna go to the righty. We're gonna go to the bullpen and please introduce yourself, special guest. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I'm not Mina Kimes, but it's me, special guest Xavier. I am also very sorry that you are not Mina Kimes, but that's okay. I'm very happy that you are Xavier and that you, you are, are here. You are the second person that I would have wanted to be the special guest right behind Mina. I mean, I would have I would have wanted Poppy get get Poppy in here. See, see, very intrigued. <laughs> That would be fucking great, but that's unfortunately, that's all in our mind's eye. That'll have to remain a fantasy, but there are things in front of our real eyes nowadays that are making memories for us. Do either of you have, have anything that's particularly jumping out to you these last couple of days in the sporting world? So I'll go two, and I'll make them both quick. First of all, Philadelphia Union going to the Eastern Conference Final for the first time. Andre Blake making all the memories for me because in full disclosure, while I am a huge Philadelphia sports fan. I'm also a big soccer fan. I admittedly have not followed the union as closely as I should. Andre Blake, our goaltender, is the only player that I could name to you on the union. But I know that it went to a penalty shootout and not a single shot from Nashville went into the net. Two went over the bar. It was two and two, two saves, two missed. So Andre Blake making memories for me. And I also want to shout out George Cambosos Jr. pulling off the upset of the year in boxing on Saturday night, upsetting Teofimo Lopez by decision in his hometown of New York from Australia, which if you know boxing, you know that when it goes to the cards, there's a lot of suspect things that can happen. The decision was taking so long for them to announce it that I was saying there's no way that they are not robbing Cambosos right now. He clearly won the fight, but... I was worried they were going to rob him. The judges got it right. It was a split decision, but Cambosos did win and takes with him three of the four major belts. And I just want to shout him out for the great line he had afterwards. There's uh, In the lightweight division, there's four up-and-coming young guys that were considered the kings of the lightweight division. There's Teofimo Lopez, there's Ryan Garcia, there's Devin Haney, and there's Gravante Davis. And they all call themselves the king of the division. So in the post-fight, Cambosos said... You know, I might not be a king, but I'm an emperor. I come to your land and I take all the gold and I go back home. So that's an incredible line. Um, ah, so damn. Cambosos yeah, it Jr. is. I, I honestly, he was a 12 to 1 underdog. So to put that in context for people who don't understand betting, if you were to flip a coin and it comes up heads five times in a row, that's the same amount of chance that the odds makers were giving Cambosos to win the fight. And he did. And he did it decisively. So Andre Blake, George Cambosos Jr., both making memories for me. That's awesome. We're I we're we're into boxing here now. I also think going back to to goaltending for a second. So hitting a major league pitch pretty much establishes the hardest thing to do in sports. I feel like stopping penalty shootouts got to be in in contention for number two. To, from a mental standpoint, like the the just standing there waiting for a kick, I'd break. I'd shatter so, into a million pieces, man. So it, it's hard, and the, the advantage is definitely on the penalty taker. But because there are options other than just goal or saved, two, two of the four penalties against Andre Blake were blasted over the bar. So there, there is a chance that you could stand in the goal and the 
the taker could just mess up and kick it wide or high. Absolutely. Would, absolutely. <clears throat> where I think, where I think uh, your comparison, James, works perfectly is for the average Joe to step in and do it. None no of way. Us are, There's no none physical of us are way. Gonna, none of us are going to hit a baseball that's thrown by a major league pitcher, and none of us are going to stop a professional soccer player from scoring that goal against us in the penalty. You know, Unless like, they are kicking the ball physically to hit us, and even then it's probably going to knock us backwards into the goal. Or if Scott, Scott Sterling, Sterling. Yes. The Scott Sterling yes. method is all we have. <laughs> we hope and pray to get severe brain damage because that's the only way that we're going to stop that ball. Love Scott Sterling. Uh, how about you, man? Who's, who's, uh, who's making memories for you right now, buddy? So unfortunately, most of my teams either suck or are having rough patches. And I'm also praying that Temple doesn't hire Marty Morningweg as their uh, as their head coach because apparently he's interested in the job. But I don't I'm gonna know. Go ahead and say as a Ravens fan, no, you do not want Marty. We we but do I not don't want know that why to Temple happen. would be interested in Marty Morningweg. So we get Temple football head coaching search. Temple basketball top scorer breaks his foot out for the season. Arsenal loses a killer game today against Manchester United. The Yankees did nothing in free agency, and then who knows if we'll even have baseball this year. You, know, you never know with the owners. And, you know, I, I it, the, only, the only people that are actually doing some positives are the Rangers. So shout out to the New York Rangers who have won eight of nine. And for some reason are still, every every power rankings I see ha- puts them in the teens. They have the fifth best record in hockey, but it seems like no one thinks that they're going to stay that way. But we've already played almost a quarter of the season. So, you know, at this point, I'm just going to accept the fact that I think the Rangers are good this year. And I think the Rangers are very good this at year. The very I don't least, think that's absurd for you to say. We that. have Igor Shesterkin, who is 100% a top five goalie in the league, and mm-hmm. I love him. So I'd say two of the best young goalies right now are in that larger New York area. Like him and, um, oh my goodness, I cannot for the life of me. Ilya Sorkin. Like him and Islander Sorkin are just insanely good. And I really like it when really hyped people live up to the hype. I'm always, if, if you're going to hype someone up that way, I always think it is better for someone to turn out the way people expect it. Like I, a bust is never, I, I don't get enough schadenfreude out of that. I don't enjoy the misery of a bust enough for that to overcome someone turning out to be just as good as we thought maybe they could be. And uh, it's so cool that both those guys came over and just immediately are brick walls. I'm just going to go ahead and build off what you said, Xavier. Uh, Rob Manfred's making memories for me because he's a fucking piece of shit. And so are most (laughs) of the owners of uh, baseball teams. I hate him. I hate him as much as he hates the game of baseball. It is. I can't believe that this week we found out that they used two different baseballs during the same season. And we can't even focus on that egregious violation of the sanctity of a sport because they did a different egregious violation of the sanctity of sport by just locking a bunch of players out. Fuck Rob Manfred. He's such a goddamn piece of shit. Well, well, what's particularly worrisome about the using two different balls is I am a person that bets on sports. I do enjoy it. I enjoy gambling. But when that's being like openly legalized now, now we have a professional league that's using two different balls that will fly in two different ways, that will come off of a pitcher's hand in two different ways, and kind of just indiscriminately, you know, they'll say it was indiscriminate, but, you know, if it's a 6-1 game and the bases are loaded, 
maybe we put the juice ball out there real quick. Try to. Well, I mean, and what they're up, saying like, is it isn't necessarily even indiscriminate because they were saying, oh, for the primetime games where we're going to have the Yankees and the Red Sox playing on cable, like, yeah, then people want to see fucking dingers. So we're going to put those out. And then when it's some Kansas City Royals, Seattle Mariners day game, they're going to put out the balls that no one gives a shit about because they want pace of play to quicken at, at the expense of everything else. So it's like, it's not even indiscriminate. It's actively choosing games where you're going to put your thumb on the scale and, and agreeing with what you're saying and taking it up even a further notch. Just fuck them for it. But, you know, with the player compensation thing, that's one where I will side with Manfred just a little bit because, I mean, they're treating the minor leaguers like they're human beings now. So the money has to come <laughs> from somewhere. I'm just saying, let's look at the bottom line a little bit. Rob, I got you. You got to treat the minor leaguers like they're not you know, just cargo being shipped across the country on buses. That's where I sympathize with you a little bit. You got to treat people like people. It's tough. So the one thing that I saw that has made me laugh a little bit about this, despite it being a terrible situation, is uh, MLB had to scrub all player likeness from their site because they can't actually use their likeness now while there's no CBA. So a bunch of players have taken the fake silhouette things that MLB have uh, have transitioned the website to and made them their new Twitter uh, avatars. So I saw this because uh, Jamison Tyone, the uh, Yankee starter, who just had ankle surgery a month ago, supposed to be a five-month recovery period, he, ha- he has this, uh, this new fake uh, silhouette avatar. But his tweet was, since MLB chose to lock us out, I'm not able to work with our amazing team physical therapists who have been leading my post-surgery care slash progression. Now that I'm in charge of my own PT, what should my first order of business be? I'm thinking I'm done with this boot. It can go. So the players who were injured and have had surgery are no longer able to keep working with the people who have been leading their recovery because of the lockout. Yeah. The owners are are being bad. They're doing a bad thing. This is not of both sides. A lockout is a unilateral decision by roughly 30 people to... Uh, deprive all of the players of their work and deprive all of us of uh, a thing that we love very, very much. And I am 100% confident that baseball is coming back. I don't think this is the end of baseball. And what really heartens me is it does seem like this time, at least in the spheres where I talk about sports, this is one of the first, I think, lockouts or strikes where it's really been most of the people I talk to taking the side of the players. And, And that's great. Like Even in the last couple... In basketball and football, I feel like there was still a little bit more of the mentality, oh, these guys making so much. There seems to be a little bit more consciousness of the fact that, yeah, Max Scherzer is going to get $43 million a year. And every single team, uh, and I will go ahead and cite Craig Goldstein for, for being the one that passed this number online where I saw it. Uh, every single team ballpark per year beginning in 2022 with all of these cable deals is going to get $60 million a year just from those cable deals. Absolutely nothing else. So they're going to be just fine. Baseball will be fine, but this sucks. So fuck Rob Manfred. Uh, this is an unpleasant memory. I hope it's a memory very, very soon. Fuck Manfred. Fuck commissioners. Fuck them all. Go the people that actually get on the field and entertain us and play the games that we love. And you know what? I think that's it. That's what we're here to celebrate. We're here to celebrate some athletes. And this week, we're celebrating athletes who find themselves in uh, what we were just describing as a record scratch moment. Kind of a, yep, that's me. How how did I end up here? And I'm going to kick that off with someone that I'm 100% certain you all know. There's no way you haven't seen the moment 
where this person is having that thought in their head. But I don't know if you know the name, Stephen Bradbury. I do not. I don't that's, either. That's perfectly fine. I want to take you back to a shining moment in Stephen Bradbury's life in February of 2002. There is a pile of bodies. Just a, just a heap of bodies laying up against a wall. Stephen Bradbury is not a part of that. And because Stephen Bradbury is not a part of these bodies, Stephen Bradbury is about to reach the pinnacle of his career. But before we get there, let's fast forward to find out how Stephen Bradbury finds himself in that position. Stephen Bradbury is Australian. He's from Down Under. Uh, he was born on October 14th, 1973. Born in the town of Camden in New South Wales. Here's some fun facts about Camden in New South Wales. Originally founded in 1795, it was called Cow Pastures. All one word, Cow Pastures. And that's, that's because... A, that's a better name. Well, here's why. It's because when they found that land, they happened to find a herd of cows that had been missing for a few weeks. Just, land, just living there. And so they named it Cow Pastures. But cows are not what made Camden, New South Wales famous. That's not what put it on the map down in Australia. What put it on the map was a man by the name of John MacArthur, who was the father of the Australian wool industry. Uh, I know New Zealand is very famous for having a lot of sheep, but Australia has a fair share of sheep as well. But that is not what Stephen Bradbury's family is about. Uh, Stephen is born to John and Rhonda Bradbury. And John Bradbury is a professional athlete in a sport that had originated in the U.S. and Canada in the early 1900s, but is really on an international stage starting to pick up now. And then is short track speed skating. Yep. <laughs> which is a phenomenal sport. It's, I think, one of the highlights of the Winter Olympics, which is why I was surprised to find that it is, especially on the international stage, a very recent development, relatively speaking. It starts in the U.S. and Canada in like the turn of the century, 1800s, 1900s, going into the 1930s or so. There were competitions. Uh, it was almost always held indoors because there's not as much just open frozen lake in Canada and America as opposed to some of the Nordic countries where a lot of the other winter sports come from, like long track speed skating or any of the, the ski jumps and all that stuff. So here in America, they're playing in indoor arenas, and that's why they play on these much shorter rinks. It is played in a rink the size of a hockey rink. It is very specifically that size. So it's it's big thing. Madison Square Garden hosted some big short track speed skating competitions in 1932. And then eventually, in 1967, the International Skating Union is formed, and they start to have internationally recognized competitions in the 70s and 80s. There's still some domestic uh, competitions before that, and that is when John Bradbury, in the 60s, is a champion in Australia for short track speed skating. He's one of the best short track speed skaters in the country of Australia. There's not a huge number of ice rinks in Australia. It's not particularly <laughs> well known for its winter sports. But he, you know, lives a life that, that keeps him there. And so his son, growing up, has, I would say, a disproportionate amount of access to winter sport gear compared to the average Australian. And so Stephen Bradbury also gets really good at short track speed skating as a kid. In fact, he is 17 years old when he starts to participate for the Australian men's national team. And in 1991, in Australia, they're having the International Speed Skating World Championship that year. And Stephen Bradbury, as a 17-year-old, he's on a team with three other guys. There's a 19-year-old, Kieran Hansen. There are two 23-year-olds, John Ka and then Richard Nizielski. Nizielski, Hansen, and Bradbury are going to be tight as hell for 
years following this. And John Ka is also going to be on a couple of these teams. But this 1991 team, they win the gold, the world championships. It is, in 1991, the first ever medal in, like, any competition of winter sports for the country of Australia in a major competition. They had not medaled in anything prior to 1991. And, like, I was not expecting that they had some secret, you know, ringer in biathlon or whatever for years and years. Like, I I didn't think I was going to find that they had some crazy high total. But it's a big country. They have a lot of athletes. That's pretty crazy. But that's not enough. That's not enough for this quartet. They got more. They want to bring more more of that glory home. And the good news is they have a chance to very soon after because in 1992, they've got the Olympics coming up. Do you guys know where the 1992 Winter Olympics were held? Lilyhammer? No, not quite. We're getting to Lilyhammer shortly. But in 1992, Diaz, any guesses? 92 Olympics, Barcelona is all my brain has, and I know that was summer. So Yeah, so that's the summer, and this is a year where they're still being held in the same year. Nagano, is it? It's not Nagano. We're going to get to Nagano in 98, but 92, it is the bumfuck nowhere Alp town in France called Albertville. It is just this like giant kind of resort area in this place in the middle of the Alps, very near Italy, very near Switzerland, and in France. Hosted the 1992 never, Winter Olympics. Ever heard of that Olympic Games? And I'm more surprised that I didn't know that because usually things like that, when I hear the name, I'm like, oh yeah, of course. But I have I'll, never I'll once I, heard of the Albertville Winter Olympics. So when I was gonna go on Jeopardy, like I looked ahead of time to see when the episodes were gonna air and like what was gonna be going on around that time. And it was gonna be close to the Winter Olympics. So I was like, oh, I should check some Winter Olympic stuff. They'll probably wanna have stuff going with like the broadcast. Even then, I don't think I ever saw the name Albertville. But Albertville in France in 1992 is where we find the quartet once again of the same four guys. We got Stephen Bradbury, Richard Nazielski, Kieran Hansen, and still John Ka right now. And they're pretty well ranked at this point like they just won the world championship they're they're considered contenders for a medal but here's the thing about speed skating if you have not seen short track speed skating it's five people most of the time racing at any given time some of the team rounds they'll go down to four for international competitions but at this time it is typically going to be five in the rank and crashes happen a lot most of the time people are pretty safe but crashes happen constantly in this sport there are a lot of rules to try and mitigate the effects that those have on overall competition uh there's you know you will get disqualified if you're trying to if someone thinks you're purposely falling to throw someone else off you will get disqualified if you just like push a teammate of yours further ahead like that's you know exertion that they're not doing necessarily there's all kinds of ways to try and mitigate that but at the end of the day crashes have a very outsized effect on this and because of that unfortunately in the semis Nazielski, coming around, one of the final bends, is taken out in a crash. What's kind of sad for Stephen Bradbury here, Stephen Bradbury is actually the reserve for this particular race in the semis. And so all he can do is watch from the sidelines as Nazielski is unable to finish high enough in the semis to advance to the middle round. And so they're knocked out sooner than expected. It is, it's a bummer. The good news is, people that fail in the 1992 Winter Olympics do have a unique opportunity to get some vengeance. Because just two years later is another Winter Olympics. This is the one time that they have Winter Olympics two years apart to try and now set it so that it is not taking place the same year as the uh, Summer Olympics. And so in Lilyhammer in 94, 
here they come back again. And they, they just want a medal. They are, they are not necessarily going out for gold. They adopt the strategy. Hey, just stay on your feet. We have seen what this does to us in other competitions. Just stay on your feet and we will probably be able to capitalize. Bradbury is the star of the team at this point. He, he is very much like the guy on it. it and he's very like popular Australian athlete. He looks so Australian. If you take a look at him, he's got <laughs> spiked blonde hair. He's super fucking tan. He looks so Australian. It is, uh, it's pretty absurd. Even today, like even at the age of uh, 47 now, I believe still absolutely has that vibe. And he is at this time, one of the best speed skaters in the world. And so he's leading this Australian team. They do make it to the finals. Once again, Nazilski is the anchor. He is coming right up on the U.S. skater. Nazilski's trying to jostle for the silver, and then he eases up, remembering what happened in the semis a couple of years back. Doesn't quite push for that. Stays on his feet to cross for an easy bronze, and it is the first ever Olympic winter medal for the country of Australia. They have won their first ever medal in Winter Olympic competition on the backs of this quartet of uh, short track speed skaters. It is no longer John Ka. They have taken out John Ka. It is now Kieran Hansen, Stephen Bradbury, Richard Nazielski, and Richard Gorlitz. We got double Richards now. That is the team that brings the country of Australia their first ever Winter Olympic medal. Unfortunately, in individual competition, crashes are the downfall of our boy Bradbury. But again, he, he's at the physical peak of his career right now, coming off his first ever Olympic medal. Uh, he's got a, a berth in the World Championship in Montreal just a little bit later. Things are on the up and up until we get to that 94 World Championship in Montreal. You know that one goalie who got slashed in the throat? Valarchuk. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. For the Sabres. So we're about to have a Valarchuk injury. Oh, God, uh, no. I, we're about to have a Valarchuk injury. Uh, yeah, I so I just want to, like, give you that heads up and anyone else that's listening, like, we're about to talk about someone lose a good chunk of blood. He is in the qualifiers for the 94 World Championship in Montreal. An arrival skater. I swear to God, I looked through 20 different articles. No one seems to have the name of this skater recorded. I don't know if that was to protect the skater or anything like that. Blade slices his leg. It slices all four of his quadricep muscles. Ooh. His, his heart rate had been about 200 beats per minute during this race. I'll ask you guys a question. Do you know how much blood in liters the human body has? We have six liters of blood in us. And in 60 seconds, he loses about four of those. This is an incredibly horrible injury. It requires 111 stitches. He is not able to put full weight on his leg for 18 months. This is a potentially career-ending injury. And scary as shit. I, 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 I gotta ask, like, did he pass out? I would assume Oh, yeah, so. no. He's, like, unconscious almost from a, a couple seconds, apparently, when he hits the ice. Like, <clears throat> I don't know how you stay awake after the, the pain of four sliced quadricep muscles hits you. Well, not even that. Just, like, it's six liters. There's four that are out. So, like, that's, like, blood to the brain, even. Like, you know what I mean? Like... Yeah, he was receiving emergency transfusions during the ambulance ride there. I, I just hate this. I, I hate this mental image I have right now because that's just... As someone who thinks a lot about the fact that we have multiple sports where people just have blades on their feet, somehow we haven't had more insane injuries and deaths. Thank God that, you know, he survived, but that's also... Yeah. ...horrifying, and I would have thrown up 
everywhere if I saw it. So here's what I'll say about short track speed skating. Many crashes, mostly pretty safe. Very few people walk away horribly injured. He does this one time, walk away horribly injured, but that does not diminish Stephen Bradbury's love for the sport. Stephen Bradbury comes back four years later to Nagano. This is the 1998 Olympics that you got the location of earlier, X. He is back with his boys, Kieran Hansen and Richard Nizielski. They got Richard Gorlitz still in tow this time, so we still got double Richards. They're, you know, thinking that, hey, we medal again. We're, we're still a competitive team. The oldest one is Nizielski, and he's 31 years old, which is an elder statesman thing, but he's also one quarter of this quartet. Uh, and they, in their qualifying performance, they go four seconds faster than their medal-winning performance from a few years back. But of course, as we talked about, they were in a stay-on-your-feet mode that time, and it was not necessarily their most competitive time. This time, while it is good, it is not good enough to advance. They do not make it out of the semis. They also see Stephen Bradbury once again losing pretty much all of his individual events pretty early on. Uh, he makes it to the semis in the 1,000 meter, uh, which is kind of the classic one that we picture. That's the one that a up-and-coming star by 1998 was starting to specialize in. And it is kind of the, the main single event of short track speed skating. Stephen Bradbury has now got four more years to think about whether he wants to do another Olympics. This was his third Olympics. It was his third Olympics in, what, six years? It was his third Olympics. And while he's considering that, before Salt Lake City, about 18 months prior, he unfortunately has another potentially career-ending injury. This one is a little less graphic. He is in a qualifying race trying to avoid a crash. He hops over the, like, mass of bodies goes down and breaks his neck so he's had his legs sliced open and lost two-thirds of his blood and then broken his neck doing the same thing and wants to keep doing that thing this sounds like an australian if i've ever heard of one (laughs) i would have taken that as a sign that i need to get out of there and never get on the ice again Awesome little lives. scratch, mate. <laughs> well, it's and it's the extent to which he had to do it because he has like a full-on one of those full encircling you halo braces on his neck for several months, and he can't really do a lot of training then. And we're you know less than a year out now from Salt Lake City, and he wants to compete. He wants to make it to one final Olympics. This is going to be his last one, but he wants to make it to one more. He at one point with his dad, John Bradbury, who at this point is now living in Brisbane, mate, with Rhonda. They're still married and they're running an ice rink there because John is still a former short track speed skater himself. He makes Steven twice a day go on two and a half hour run sessions, six days a week to get back in form after taking all this time off because of the neck brace, just to get his like endurance levels back up. He's running a minimum of 30 hours a week with his dad during this training period. He has to take out a $1,000 loan from his parents at this time to, like, just get a car fixed so that he continue to drive to training. Like, he's one of the Olympic athletes who does not have sponsorship deals and is struggling to make it to the Olympics, even though he is a star athlete. All of those stories that we hear about Stephen Bradbury is one of those. The good news is he does make it to those 2002 Olympics. Part of that is because he has a, a little bit of a side hustle. He has been working on something called Revolutionary Boot Company, working out of his garage with a couple buddies in the late 90s, and he's selling to major 
ice skating athletes. He's got the industry connections. He has, at this time, connected with someone who is the favorite in this event, and that is the man that will someday be the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympian of all time, Apollo Antonona. Stephen Bradbury wants to hitch his wagon to that star. Stephen Bradbury asks Apollo Anton Ono, assuming he's going to win. He is the favorite. Everyone assumes he's going to win. He asks him if he will endorse RBC boots after he wins <laughs> in Salt Lake City. And so Apollo Anton Ono and him like have this professional relationship. Kills it in his first heat. Absolutely demolishes his first heat. So moves on to the quarterfinals. Wouldn't you know it, in the quarterfinals, he's matched up with Apollo Anton Ono and Marc Gagnon who is a Frenchman, the defending world champion, not the defending like Olympic gold medals, but the defending world champion in short track. And sure enough, he finishes third behind those two. But Marc Gagnon made an illegal contact. Try and move past someone else. And Marc Gagnon is disqualified. Therefore, moving on to the semis is our boy, Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury now is in the semis. He is the second oldest competitor in the field. This is already, hey, groovy, man. What, what a way to go out. And in the semis, once again, in an absolutely brutal draw, he has the defending Olympic champion from South Korea, Kim Dong-sung. He's got former international medalist Matthew Tukot from French Canada, Quebec, Canada. And he's got Li <laughs> Jishuan from the People's Republic of China, another recent international competitor. Everybody crashes in this semi and skating on through past the bodies, Stephen Bradbury. And this gets him into the medal match which, again, I mean, now it's the medal match. Of course it's going to be a murderer's row. An Kyun Su, who's another very talented Korean. Uh, Lee Jijuan, Paulo Antonono, and Matthew Turcot. All of them are there, along with Stephen Bradbury. The race starts. It's 10 laps. 10 laps is the 1,000 meters around. Uh, in case you're ever wondering, it's about 100 meters around a hockey rink if you're doing some ice skating there. So 10 laps around it. It's a very tight group. There's a lot of passing early on before you kind of set up that line for the middle laps. And then everyone just kind of stays in your line for the middle laps. And this whole time, Stephen Bradbury's back there. He had said going into this race that he was thinking to himself, you know, everyone else in this group's feeling a lot of pressure. Like everyone else, you know, Matthew Turcotte hasn't medaled in the Olympics yet. And this is his only event. Paul Antonono's got the golden boy shine around him. Like all these guys have a lot of pressure. And I don't. I very much don't. I'm just Stephen Bradbury, mate. I'm just here to waltz Matilda on the ice. I'm going to stop now. This feels offensive. That <laughs> felt racist. <laughs> I can really anyway, strip on the Bobby. Steve Iwin. No, Steve Bradbury. Steve Bradbury figures all these guys, they're going to push themselves as much as possible. And they start to, as you get into the eighth and ninth lap, they're all now sort of jostling. He has stayed at the same pace. He was very much getting, like, he's now fading back a little bit as you come into the final turn. It's debatable whose fault it is. Li Zhijuan tries to make a move. Matthew Turcotte gets a little bit tangled up. Matthew Turcotte's the first one to go down. And someone's hand just kind of goes out and smacks Apollo Antonino, who's been leading for laps. But he just kind of, in the skid out, someone gets him. He falls to the ground, maybe 15 feet short of the finish line when he hits the wall. But Stephen Bradbury, all of a sudden, crosses the finish line as the first ever Australian to win an Olympic gold, he has defeated the entire field with the stay on your feet measure. And this is the video that I'm certain you've seen because Stephen Bradbury just skates across, stands up. There's no shouting. There's no screaming. It's just kind of a wow. Wow. Look, look at this, guys. 
Some people are not happy about this. Some people are very unhappy about this. A lot of them are American sports writers. They think Stephen Bradbury's kind of a piece of shit for a little bit. But Stephen Bradbury is now an Australian hero. This is... <laughs> a st- he's been competing on the world stage for 11 years at this point. He's been, at several times, one of the best short track speed skaters in the world. And this was still a pretty young sport, relatively speaking, when he picked up. It, he's got a place in the Pantheon, at the very least at the national level in Australia by this time. But here, all the way at the end of the road, as the second oldest competitor in the field, against the guy who was going to endorse his boots when he beat him, Stephen Bradbury wins the gold medal. It is easily the highlight of his career. You might think, hey, I mean, people give you shit about that all the time, Stephen Bradbury, what do you say to that? Well, Stephen Bradbury would say, obviously, I wasn't the fastest skater, I don't think I'll take medal as the minute and a half race I actually won. I'll take it as the last decade of the hard slog I put in. And I think that's absolutely great. Like, athletes who find themselves in lucky positions have had to do so much work to put themselves in the position for that luck to happen. There's no one who fully just does nothing and has this, you know, people were saying, oh, the gold medal fell into his lap. He still had to kill it in the heat. He still had to qualify. He still had to take out a thousand dollar loan just to repair the busted ass truck that he was driving for these practices. He put in the work to get to that spot and he did it in a sport where crashes have a very outsized impact on the outcome of races. Well, if we're talking about luck equity, I feel like getting your thigh sliced open and losing two thirds of your blood and then years later breaking your neck I think that's some bad luck. Yeah. So I think his, his luck equity, his karma, if you will, was pretty built up to, to have actually earned the, the red carpet treatment, as you will, as he came I, to the finish line. I 100% agree. Um, unfortunately, like that context was lost, again, on a lot of American sports writers at that time. If you look into it today, people do not hold bitter feelings. I think about Stephen Bradbury. No one would have known that because no one really would have been paying attention to Stephen Bradbury going into this race. So it's understandable that people were ignorant of that, but yeah, dude lost two thirds of his blood at one point doing this because someone else crashed into him. And that's how this sport goes. Sometimes we talk about blood, sweat and tears. I don't think anybody can say that on a more literal level than Stephen Bradbury. He does write a biog- an autobiography. The title is Last Man Standing. It's a very good autobiography title. Yeah, that's pretty good. Because <laughs> uh, he's, he's absolutely a celebrity in Austria. Again, first ever winter gold medal. So he's now been part of the first ever medal and the first ever winter gold medal. He outlasted all of that trio. The rest of the trio did not make it to Salt Lake City. So he was the beating heart of that period of, of short track speed skating in Australia's history, which... Hey, I didn't, you know, know was an extended period. I just knew about Stephen Bradbury crossing that finish line. And that's, you know, more or less the end of Stephen Bradbury's notable story. Some fun facts. He did, uh, after that, pay his parents back with that $1,000 loan. He donates $15,000 that he got from one of his contract endorsements to the ice skating rink that they run in Brisbane. So that's lovely. He is, in 2005, the very first contestant eliminated from the Australian version of Dancing with the Stars. This is the second season of Australian Dancing with the Stars. Goes a little bit higher two years later when he's awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. 
And I would say, I'll take that over winning Australian Dancing with the Stars personally, but that's that's just me. <laughs> Keep racking up medals, baby. <laughs> in 2006 and 2010, he's a commentator for the Olympics. In 2019, one of the most recent things he's done, can't get enough of Australian reality TV, he did appear on Australian Survivor as well. One last thing about him is that his name has entered the popular vernacular in Australia. Winning something kind of unexpectedly is called doing a Bradbury, or I've, I've done a Bradbury. And people make a phrase out of you kind of winning because a bunch of other people crash. You might think that could get to somebody. Uh, but Stephen Bradbury is actually a motivational speaker nowadays. And part of that is just because of his super like, no, I'm, I'm all good with that outlook. Because as he says, all that's very Australian as well. And every time it's used, I love it. And I hope they're still using it when I'm dead. Still kicking now, 48 years old, and the greatest winter Olympian in Australian history. That is my guy this week. Yeah, I mean, he's the, he's the embodiment of an Australian athlete. Approach everything with a good sense of humor. Lose four pints of blood. Ah, you know, just a scratch. I'm going to get right back out there. Break my neck. I'll just run for 30 hours a week. But, you know, that picture is just really, that's exactly, it's the perfect reaction. The only thing he's missing is like some kind of interaction with a deadly creature Oh yeah, it's the time I ate some tarantulas. I I really got I can't do an Australian accent. I really have to stop doing a discredit to those people. It's tough. I mine I think is not terrible because I listened to Brett Brown coach uh, the Sixers for years. So he's got he's got that interesting Australian accent. I, the only thing that I would ever say you should pause this podcast for is right now to go listen to Brett Brown speak if you've never heard words from that man's mouth because it's just the most lovely accent. Well, gentlemen, Stephen Bradbury overcoming everything to win the 2002 gold in short track speed skating at the Olympics. That's my record scratch moment. Let's hear about yours. Who's who's feeling feisty? I'll hop in here and I'm going with a baseball player. And Wilson is a name that we associate with a lot of, you know, volleyball. Of course, the famous volleyball and castaway. Wilson makes some great basketballs. Um, but... Wilson is not known for making baseballs, but there is a Wilson that made baseball history. And his name is Wilson Valdez. Wilson Valdez is a Dominican former professional baseball player. Some, some very, very brief pretext, because I just really want to dive into this record scratch moment for him. But, so Wilson Valdez signs as an undrafted free agent with the Montreal Expos in 1997. Spends three years, his first three years, as a professional baseball player in the Dominican Republic, playing for the Montreal Expos farm system. Uh, the next two seasons through 2001, he is now playing for various single-A affiliates for the Expos, and ultimately, he's just placed on waivers. They don't think he's going to go anywhere with his career. So in 2002, he's claimed by the Florida Marlins, and they actually sent him straight to double-A. So he goes straight to double-A Portland, continues with the organization until 2003, uh, even getting as high as the triple-A team, and he is finally traded from the AAA Albuquerque Isotopes. Topes! To the Chicago White Sox system in exchange for reliever Billy Cock. He is... A Simpsons reference and a dick joke all in one sentence. I love it. All of it. So he immediately goes to the AAA team where he continues to do quite well. He's hitting 302. So he is a September call-up and he hits his first career home run on September 26th off of Brian Anderson. In limited action, he hits 233 for the Sox. So Wilson Valdez is waived after finally making it to the bigs. He goes to the Mariners, 
Begins the season as their starting shortstop, but he is unfortunately below the Mendoza line. He is 198, so he is traded to the Padres. Uh, the Padres sent him straight to AAA, refines his form, he comes back up, and he finishes the season with the Padres. He is then released by the Padres. Oh, and man. He is signed by the Kansas City Royals. The Royals promptly trade him to the <laughs> Los Angeles Dodgers. So just any team that gets their hands on Wilson, they're immediately getting rid of him. He just fucking really hot no potato. Home. He is a castaway, if you will, to get back to the intro. So oh, that was terrible. It was really bad, but I had to do it. Spends the 2006 season just in AAA with the Dodgers. Does not see any MLB action in 2006. Is promoted in 2007. And on April 29th, 2007, this is a bit of pretext, a bit of foreshadowing, if you will. He scores the game-winning run in a game against the Padres in a game that went 17 innings. Unfortunately, after this 2007 season, he is sold to the Korean League. So he spends what his the entire fuck? 2008 season, Wilson Valdez, is bouncing around. So in 2008, he is sold to the Kia Tigers of the Korean baseball organization. In June, he signs with the Tokyo Yakult Swallows. Who, so, well, we can just pause for a moment to acknowledge, are the recent NPB champions. Kudos to the Occult Swallows. Do wish that Adam Jones and the Oryx Buffalo had pulled it out, but tip a cap. They did. They did. So, unfortunately, Adam Jones didn't win. But the Occult Swallows, the defending champions, and back in 2008, they took a good chance on Wilson Valdez. Nothing really notable about his time with either team, just to say that he had to go over to Asia to spend a year playing professional baseball amongst the Korean and Japanese leagues before he is then re-signed in December 2008 by the Cleveland Indians. So this now leads into the 2009 season. He's spending the beginning of the season still in the farm system. Then he's traded to the New York Mets. The New York Mets do add him to the major league roster for a brief time. And then he is designated for assignment. It goes back down. So his contract now ends at the end of the 2009 season. Now we get to the fun part. So after his contract has expired with the Mets, he is signed to a minor league deal with the Philadelphia Phillies, who immediately add him to their AAA team. That's not the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. It's the Reading Phillies. So the Reading Phillies are the AA affiliate. It is the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs are the AAA affiliate. But I need to, I'll just correct very briefly. It was the Reading Phillies for the longest time. No longer the Reading Phillies. They are now the Reading Fighting Phils. Fighting Phils. T-I-N apostrophe P-H-I-L-S. Fighting Phils. So it is the nickname of the Phillies, but it is the actual name of the AA affiliate Reading Fighting Phils. I appreciate that they codified the apostrophe very much. <laughs> it needs to be in there. It needs to be in there. There's no fighting. It's fighting. Fight. Fightings. So he starts the season... And the minors very briefly, but Jimmy Rollins then goes to the DL. So they need to call up a utility infielder. So Wilson Valdez has his shot. The immediate backup, though, was Juan Castro. So Juan Castro slides in his shortstop, but then Juan Castro gets hurt. So now Wilson Valdez gets to step in, and he spends a few weeks at the start of the season as the starting shortstop. He then is sent back down after Rollins gets healthy, after Castro gets healthy. But... Then Rollins gets hurt again. So he gets uh, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're counting on Jimmy Rollins' health for your career, you can probably get some some good career time in on that. Well, it's so it's not just <laughs> Rollins. Here's the thing: he was called up just to be utility infielder again, while Castro did his thing. Then Chase Utley gets hurt, so Valdez oh my goodness. Over to second base. 
in this 2010 season, he has a few noteworthy moments. Has the has a walk-off single in a game on the 29th of July against the Diamondbacks to win the game for the Phillies. And for this season, in 2010, he sets his career high in games, at-bats, runs, hits, total bases, doubles, triples, home runs, runs batted in, walks, intentional walks, strikeouts, stolen bases, <laughs> slugging percentage, and OPS. So just 2010 is a seminal moment, seminal season in the career of Wilson Valdez. We're not here to talk about the 2010 season or any of the games within that. We're here to talk about the game, which was played on May 25th, 2011. between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Cincinnati Reds. So the first noteworthy thing about this game before a pitch is even thrown. Roy Halladay, of course, great Roy Halladay, rest in peace. In the offseason prior, in game one, in his first postseason game ever, through a no-hitter against the Cincinnati Reds. This is the first game that he has played against the Reds since then. He was not quite as successful in this game. He goes seven <laughs> innings, gives up 11 hits, but only three runs. So he spaced them out enough. He did well. And sure enough, at the end of nine innings, the game is tied at 3-3, three to three, and we go to extras. At the top of the 10th, Jay Bruce leads off with a solo home run, and we're thinking, well, fuck. That's probably going to be it. This is probably going to be the game. But in the bottom of the 10th, Ryan Howard leads off with a solo home run. At the end of 10, it is 4-4. We do not see another run scored until the 19th inning. We'll get to that 19th inning. We'll get to that 19th inning. But we're not going to get there quite yet. So what I want to take a brief aside to mention is Carlos Fisher. Carlos Fisher is just a long relief guy in the Reds' bullpen. Comes in. In the 14th inning, as the last arm standing, as it were, yeah. for the Cincinnati Reds, Carlos Fisher pitches a hell of a game. His final stat line is going to end up being five and two-thirds uh, with four strikeouts. Wow. And he only allowed four hits. That's still yes. a whip under one. That's great. Everyone's too tired to swing the bat at that point. Their arms yeah. are like jello. Two of those four hits were by Wilson Valdez. So he had a single in the 14th, and he had a double in the 16th. Ryan Howard also had a single. Um, But up until we get to this 19th inning, there have been three hits allowed by Carlos Fisher, and two of them were by Wilson Valdez. But we're not here to talk about the hitting that Wilson Valdez did in this game. We are here to talk about the pitching that Wilson Valdez did in this game. So as a career utility infielder who has been – Bounced around the definition of a guy who will just do anything to stick on the roster. After he hit this double, and actually he hit the double in the 18th inning, so I I lied a little bit earlier. He hits the double (laughs) in the 18th inning. He hits the double in the bottom of the 18th. They end up stranding him out there. And then they come back in the dugout and they say, well, fuck. Right after Wilson came up, we just pinch hit for our pitcher. We don't have any arms left in the bullpen. What are we to do? So before Charlie Manuel can even think about who he wants to put on the mound, Wilson goes right into him coming off of the field and says, hey, Charlie, I can pitch. And Charlie's like, (laughs) are you sure? Are you sure you want to? And he's like, yeah, 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 trust me. I can pitch. I got this. No big deal. So quickly consults with his staff. He's like, all right, well, Wilson's going to pitch, but how the fuck are we going to make the lineup work now? Because they've also exhausted all their bench players with the exception of the pinch hitter that just hit. So the pinch hitter was the backup catcher, Shane Sardinia. So they had to do some shuffling around. 
Let's do. Let's let's start with Valdez. Valdez goes from second base. He was starting for Chase Utley, who was injured. He goes from second mm-hmm. base to pitcher. Acido Polanco goes from third base to second base. Carlos Ruiz, who has only ever caught on a major league level, is now sliding over to third base. To and third? Okay, so I two. assumed he was going to go to first. You can do it. No, no, no. Well, it's Ryan Howard was at first. So it's like, which would you rather put at third? At least Carlos I'd, Ruiz r- I'd rather put Ryan Howard. It's not by a really? lot. It's a small margin. But yeah, third base? Future Hall of Famer Ryan Howard. He has gotten at least one vote that I have seen so far. Brief, brief aside, if we're gonna if we're gonna celebrate a player's peak, Ryan Howard's peak is as peaky as almost any peak that there's ever been. Sure. So on that basis, I would say he deserves it. I understand longevity is consideration, but from 2005 to 2008, there was no more feared hitter in baseball, I think, than Ryan Howard. But brief aside, we'll put that away. And then the pinch hitter, Dane Sardinia, will stay in to catch now. And Wilson Valdez is on the mound, and he's. We see a lot these days with these utility players that end up pitching. They're just kind of lobbing it in there. No big deal. Wilson Valdez is not going to waste this opportunity. He is touching 89 on the radar gun. Love it. Absolutely love it. Not only is he touching 89, he is shaking off the catcher calling for fastball every time. He said, no, no, no. We talked before this inning. I have off-speed pitches too. So he's working in fastball. He's working in sinkers. He's working in curveballs. All during the warm-up, it looks great. But then, you know, the inning has to start. Who strolls in as the first batter that Wilson Valdez has to face? But reigning National League MVP Joey Votto. Greatest Canadian baseball player of all time. Yes. That's a take. I didn't think for a second, but yes. I don't think that's a take. Who who approaches Joey Votto from Canada? What, Vlad Guerrero Jr.? No, I was actually going to say Larry Walker. Mm, okay, that's a, that's a fair point. It is one of those two. It is either Larry Walker or Joey Votto. That's fair. I but think I take Joey Votto, but that's just how because... How many I'm, MVPs does Votto have? I know he has at least one, right? I believe just, just he only one. has the one. The one Larry Walker one. only has the one. Yeah, because right? that's what I'm saying. I knew Walker had one, but I couldn't remember if Votto had more than one. Yeah, Votto, Votto only had the one, but it was in 2010. So he is the reigning <clears throat> National League MVP, and he's the first batter that Wilson Valdez gets to face. He's working the count, throws a couple strikes, crowd goes wild, throws a couple balls that miss wildly. He throws one that is literally in the opposite batter's box. Um, that was when he tried to throw his sinker to Joey Votto, and he missed by about five feet. Um, <laughs> and then Votto lifts one to deep center field, but he just got under it. Michael Martinez makes the catch on the warning track for out number one. In strolls the second batter, Scott Rowland. For the uninitiated, Philadelphia fans fucking hate Scott Rowland. He was on the late 90s, early 2000s Phillies teams that the defining characteristic of those teams would be that they didn't give a shit. And that was led by Scott Rowland, who was a great talent, but just didn't give a shit when he was in Philly. So Scott Rowland strolls into the plate. And the only thing that you could do to endear yourself to the Philadelphia fans more and to strike out Scott Rowland in this instance would be to hit him with the pitch. Wilson tries to get his curveball going. It doesn't curve. It just goes 65 miles an hour straight into his back. And, of course, the crowd loves it because we're in the 19th inning. We're all here for fun. We're all here for bits at this point. So he hits him. Now there's a runner on. So now he has to go to the stretch. And I just want to emphasize here that he is still shaking off the catcher throughout. He's calling this game. 
he's like, no, 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 not the fastball. I want to throw this here. Um, so Jay Bruce now steps in. So just again, to put in context, he's going through the meat of the order. It's not like say, man, that's a, I forgot how good the early 2010 Cincinnati Reds teams were. Like Jay Bruce and Joey Votto were on some really good rosters. They really were. But Jay Johnny Bruce, Cueto. Man, oh, God, I loved Cueto. Johnny Cueto um, was the second best pitcher in the National League for like seven years behind Clayton Kershaw. He like absolutely. there were maybe other guys I would say who had better peaks like Tim Linscom was in there and Tim Linscom's peak. If you know, if we're gonna talk about guys who, if we're representing peaks, had a higher peak than anyone else, Tim Linscom's got, I'd say, an all-time two or three-year run. But like if you look at that full seven-year period from I think 2010 to 2017, it's it's Clayton Kershaw and then it's Johnny Cueto. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Just some other names that played for them in that game. Uh, you had Brandon Phillips at second base. Yeah, fuck. They had uh, th- 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 they had Johnny Gomes as a pinch hitter on that team. Mm-hmm. L- lots of lots of quality guys. But back to the guy of the of the hour, as it were, Wilson Valdez. So Jay Bruce steps in, and after seeing a couple pitches, Jay gets under one to shallow center, gets way under it, and uh, this is out number two, and. Who steps into the box? None other than Carlos Fisher. Carlos Fisher has had the bat because he's staying in the game. And at this point, the Reds made a decision that we are riding Carlos until the wheels fall off. So Carlos, I believe, sees one pitch and then promptly gets under one himself, lifts it up to second base. Blanco makes the squeeze and the crowd just absolutely loses their mind. This is a game that started at 7 a.m. It is now 1 a.m. Jesus. And... It was a sold-out crowd to get there. Of course, not everybody stayed by this point, but I would say there was roughly twenty to 25,000 fans still at this game. Is that your ballpark estimate? That is my ballpark estimate. I'm estimating the ballpark. Before, before we get to the bottom of the inning, I just also want to shout out Carlos Ruiz was at third base, did not have to make any plays, but the very first pitch that Valdez threw was fouled to the third baseline. And Carlos Ruiz, like realistically did not come close at all to catching this ball but launched himself over the tarp that's like up against the the third base Mm -hmm. side in case it rains launched himself over it to try and catch the ball missed it by probably about five feet just because he couldn't get there in time but absolutely insane effort for a guy that just caught 18 innings of a baseball game and the first thing he does is launch himself over the tarp i just need to shout that out i fucking love carlos ruiz absolutely one of my favorite i love him I just love him. I can't, I can't say it enough. But anyway, after Wilson Valdez gets the outs, the Phillies are looking at each other like, all right, well, we got to fucking win this right now if we're going to do it. Like, there's, we can't let this go any further. So Jimmy Rollins leads off with a single. Don Brown gets walked. Placido Polanco walks him over. They intentionally walk Brian Howard to load the bases. And then Raul Labanez lifts one to deep center field. Sacrifice fly. Rollins comes in to score. The Phillies win 5-4. to four. I just want to shout out Carlos Fisher as the long relief pitcher. Threw 95 pitches. Wow, complete- that's a start. He pitched a game. Starting pitcher's worth, and he went into this game probably not expecting to pitch at all because he was the literal last man out of the bullpen for them. Did he do anything at the plate? Just out of curiosity. No. He, well, he made contact against Wilson Valdez. Um, hey, there you go. Balls in play. But, you know, that... Ends it. So I do want to. We'll, we'll backtrack very briefly before we get to the to the post game of that. 
Uh, Valdez did say afterwards that he had pitched once previously nine years ago when he was in the aforementioned Dominican leagues playing for the Expos. They're in a similar situation where a game went late and he said, hey, throw me in there. He threw two innings. I have I was not able to find record of how he did in those two innings, but he did mention afterwards that he did that. So we, we know three career innings minimum. Three career minimum, two in the minors. But so in doing so, in doing this, Wilson Valdez is, of course, the, the winning pitcher. He is the pitcher of record. In winning this game, he became the first player since October 1st, 1921, to begin a game in the field and end it as the winning pitcher. I, would either of you like to guess who was that pitcher? 1921. Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth was the last player to do that. And then, two, so two years later, there was another position player that went on to win a game as a pitcher. James, mm-hmm. would you like to say? I'd like to, before I talk about the winning pitcher performance, point out that Chris Davis first went 0 for 4 at the plate with four strikeouts in that Boston game, and then somehow became the hero of the game because, yes, he got at least one strikeout on someone. It's fucking absurd. That has to be so humiliating. Uh, but. Since the stat is to start the game in the field and then become the winning pitcher, Chris Davis was the designated hitter. Oh. He does not get to join this elite club of Wilson Valdez and Babe Ruth, unfortunately for him. So in the postgame, you know, they're interviewing Wilson Valdez. And what's great about this is just, I love this as a, just a moment of cultural confusion, loss in translation, whatever you want to call it. Wilson Valdez speaks English. I want to say this. Clearly, he speaks English. He's giving this interview in English. And a reporter asked him about him shaking off the catcher. Like, oh, you know, we saw you shaking him off out there. You know, how many pitches do you have? Now, if you're a Spanish speaker, you know that the way you say how old you are is, you know, yo tengo 29 años. I am 29 years old. Similarly, if you say, oh, yo tengo 30 pitches, you would say, that would be like, oh, like I've thrown 30 pitches. So he interprets it this way. So they ask him, oh, you're shaking him off. How many pitches do you have? He says, I don't know. I wasn't keeping count. I just, I'm just throwing. I just, oh, I like love 20 that. or something? Exactly. I just, I just, I love that line because it was like, the beat writers probably didn't understand why he said that. And Wilson didn't understand why they asked it. But if you are a bilingual individual like myself, it tickled me. It tickled me so much to hear that in the post game. So all this to build up to that moment, Wilson Valdez ends up finishing the season out with the Phillies. Phillies season ends in heartbreak against those St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, in that offseason, he is actually traded to the Cincinnati Reds. So we'll just briefly wrap up his career. Traded to the Cincinnati Reds, uh, makes 44 starts for them that year, and then chose to go to the free agency. And uh, this was the last major league ball that he ever played. He did sign minor league contracts with the Giants and the Marlins thereafter. Went on to play baseball with the Camden River Sharks of the Atlantic League. Signed with the York Revolution in 2014. And so ends the baseball career of Wilson Valdez. But you're going to get bounced around all these different places. He's been on tour. There is an elite club that Wilson Valdez is in. As I mentioned, players who start the game in the field, finish the game as the winning pitcher in the last 100 years. Yeah, last century. You can officially say that now, since October 1st, 1921. So in the last 100 years, 
there are two guys that you can say that started the game in the field and ended it as the winning pitcher. You got Babe Ruth, you got Wilson Valdez. Wilson Valdez, thank you so much for making those memories for us. I remember that game distinctly because this was my senior year of high school. I remember that night, like I had an AP exam the next morning and I was like, all right, I'm going to watch the Phillies, then I'll review my notes and then I'll be ready for the AP exam. Of course. How badly did you do on that exam? Well, thankfully it was AP Spanish. So I got Ah, qué bueno. I got a, I got a five uh, muy fácil, muy fácil. But Wilson Valdez going down in the annals of baseball history. Thank you so much for being a guy that is willing to step in and do whatever the team needs to get a win. And he did. So Wilson Valdez, thank you so much. What a great guy. I love that cuz I mean like Position player pitching happens, I think we can safely say, more often now than it used to. Just guys coming in for, for mop-up duty. But I don't remember it being a thing when we were really younger for then. So, no. yeah, hey, maybe Wilson Valdez, he, he he broke that oil. or I was about to say he broke that dam, but I'm also tr- I keep thinking about the Exxon Valdez oil spill. <laughs> um, but no, he broke that dam, and, and the floodwaters flowed, and now we got position player pitching all the time. That's great. I'm, I'm glad that he ushered in this revolution. All-time great guy. The record scratches once again, and we freeze frame on your guy, Xavier. And what do we find ourselves looking at? Yeah, so first off, I want to I, uh, I give a quick shout-out to Enzo Perez, who was the inspiration for, uh, for my guy here. Uh, unfortunately, Enzo himself is not retired yet, so he could not be on this program. But maybe one day I will talk about Enzo further. My guy today is Mike McGee. Good name. That's a good guy name. Love the name. It is a very good name. So Mike McGee, born September 2nd, 1984 in Elmhurst, Illinois. And Mike McGee was a soccer player. He moved to Florida as a teenager and graduated from the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation Bradenton Academy, now known as the IMG Academy and was drafted number four overall in the 2003 MLS Super Draft uh, by the Metro Stars. Uh, Fun fact, I just learned that the MLS has a draft. It's the MLS Super Draft. Andre Blake May was I ask, drafted what, in the MLS Super Draft. So what makes it super? What differentiates the Super Draft from any regular old draft? The MLS wanting it to sound, sound cool when they had a draft that no one cared about. Okay, so it's just like this one goes up to 11. So essentially, at this point, the MLS draft is almost irrelevant. Like, I think it was two years ago where the union traded away every single one of their picks so they didn't have to care. But every every year, like, a couple players come out of the Super Draft. It's just that most teams now get all of their players either through foreign transfers or their academy. So there's not as much of a need for, like for the draft. Like I said, you still get some some good some really good players. Like 2020, Daryl DK uh, was picked number five overall. He is now a striker who plays for the United States men's national team. 2019, Frankie Maya, Tejon Buchanan, Dane St. Clair, and I think 2018 we had Miles Robinson. You see the 2018 or 2017. Yeah, Miles Robinson was 2017, and he's the starting center back for the U.S. men's national team now. So you can get a couple good players each year, but it's not as important as it was. But back in 2003, teams didn't really have academies, so that was the main way of refreshing your roster. So Mike McGee drafted number four overall by the Metro Stars. 
plays with them for six years, stays through the rebranding to uh, the the Red Bulls for getting Oh, traded. this is the Red Bulls! Okay! The Metro Stars are the Red Bulls, yes. So he, he plays with the Metro Stars slash Red Bulls for six years before being traded to the LA Galaxy in 2009. McGee plays four and a half seasons for the Galaxy as they're starting attacking midfielder, uh, sometimes second striker. Uh, he won two supporter shields in 2010 and 2011 and two MLS Cups in 2011 and 2012 before being traded to the Chicago Fire mid-season 2013. Makes an immediate impact with the Fire. Wins MLS MVP with, with Chicago. There's another two seasons at Chicago before coming back to the Galaxy for one last year uh, before retiring. But I want to focus on one single special game for uh, Mr. Mike McGee. So June 25th, 2011. Coincidentally enough, exactly one month after Wilson Valdez, uh, uh, his oh, heroics. Yeah. I, I know because I was also in high school at this point. This was actually the exact day of my high school graduation. Guys but, beget guys. Guys do beget guys. So June 25th, 2011, there is a big game between the LA Galaxy and the San Jose Earthquakes. So this is called the California Classico. This is one of the biggest rivalries in MLS. It's been a little muted uh, recently, ever since LAFC came in. And now there's the two the LA... Trafico. El Trafico, the two LA teams. But I still really like the California Classico. I've seen some really good games. One of my favorites ever was actually a year after this. California Classicos are always pretty heated. There's always like a little more, a uh, little more roughness. You leave a little bit in with the challenges, and sometimes bad things can happen. So in this game, in the 21st minute, Ryan Johnson, a forward for the Earthquakes, collides with LA Galaxy goalkeeper Donovan Ricketts, breaks Ricketts' leg, and so Ricketts, mm. has, Ricketts has to be substituted off and replaced with. The Galaxy's backup goalie, Josh Saunders. 20 minutes later, Josh Saunders has the ball and is getting ready to kick it away when forward and known agitator of the earthquake, Stephen Lenhart, is trying to mess with him a bit, goes up to him while he has the ball, heads the ball out of his hands for no reason other than to try to be a bit of a pest. It was uh, no, it's it's it some was, Milan Lucic gutless piece of shit stuff. It, it was completely uncalled for and worthy of Sean Avery. And, and worthy of a card. But well, I'm thinking specifically of that one hit that Milan Lucic had on Ryan Miller, where Ryan Miller in the locker room afterwards says, "I just want to say, like, what a gutless move that was. Gutless piece of shit." <laughs> totally fair, and, and specifically with fucking with a goalie. Yes, but we interrupted Xavier. I'm so sorry. No, no, it, it's all right. So Lenhart. Heads the ball out of Saunders' arms. And Saunders, in response, throws his arm out and elbows Lenhart in the head. Which and, I would say is a pretty reasonable reaction. And I'm sure Josh Saunders felt the same way. Unfortunately, uh, despite being the one to instigate it, Lenhart was not sent off. So at this point, having no other backup keepers, McGee runs straight to manager Bruce Arena. McGee later said, I think I was just the closest guy to him after it happened. Bruce was having choice words with the ref, and I was just standing next to him, and it finally caught my attention that someone had to play goalkeeper. I looked at him and said, and asked, Bruce, who is going to play goalie? I can't even say his words at the moment, but then I said, all right, I'll go in. So Mike McGee steps in goal. He puts on Josh Saunders' oversized goalie shirt and gloves uh, because they did not have any of his size. For context, McGee is 5'10". He's a midfielder slash forward. Oh, 
Ricketts and Saunders are both 6'4". Dang. Most oh, goalies dang. are pretty tall. Assistant coach Dave Sarakin said, he immediately stepped up and said, I got to be the guy. We all kind of looked around it and said, really? Here's a five foot whatever skinny guy going into the goal. But he took it upon himself and said that I have to take the goal here. Because we were almost at halftime, Galaxy made it a couple minutes to the half. McGee went into the locker room, decompressed and realized, wait, what the hell have I gotten myself into? He later said that he assumed the, Gal- the Galaxy in Arena would have a better plan coming out of halftime and he wouldn't be in net. Instead, Bruce Arena said, McGee, you're staying in goal. Our full plan is block as many shots as possible so you don't have to do anything. <laughs> we don't want the ball just, to touch you. <laughs> I really respect the attitude that he's taking that I think all of us have taken at some point in life. Is like, I would love to volunteer for this thing right now that I 100% assume I won't have to fully live up to. Yeah, so they send McGee back out there. And the Galaxy try to play in the Earthquakes half as much as possible. And it works. They limit the Earthquakes to only three shots on target after McGee has gone in, two of which were pretty tame efforts from further out. And in the 89th minute, a cross comes in and Steven Lenhart gets on the end of it about two yards out from goal. And Mike McGee somehow sticks out a leg and makes a sprawling kick save to deny Lenhart the would-be winner. This save wins MLS save of the week, and Mike McGee earns a clean sheet for the LA Galaxy. Yeah, baby! So the Galaxy fans, they go nuts. They, They chant McGee's name. Back in the early days of Twitter, they create multiple Mike McGee parody accounts and get the hashtag McGee facts or Mike McGee facts uh, going that they use to as essentially a uh, uh, what's his name? Chuck Norris. Yes, uh, they, it was a Chuck. It was a Chuck Norris uh, parody about yeah, all the no, things that is, Mike McGee can do. This is the do. most like early 2010s internet thing that you could possibly be describing. It's like it's nostalgic and also a little bit sickening to hear to, to <laughs> think about that time in our lives. We back then on the internet we had like three jokes, but God, we love to use them. Mike McGee doesn't do push-ups. He pushes the earth down. That was the peak of comedy back then. Uh, so they have these Mike McGee facts trending. It thankfully overshadows the other big soccer news of the day, which happened to be the U.S. blowing a two-goal two lead against Mexico in the 2011 Gold Cup final and losing 4-2. But you know, everyone wanted to focus on the positives, so they focused on, uh, on Mike McGee. Except for the earthquakes, their television analyst who was in the locker room afterwards uh, said, I think the players were a bit embarrassed, and the fans just thought, oh my gosh, we couldn't score. Yeah, I'd, I'd feel pretty shitty if my team wasn't able to score against the third string goalie a single time. Here's the thing. If we lost because, like, oh, we lost 3-2 because they also got some goals against us, then at least you didn't get shut out by the third string goalie. And I love the few times that soccer player, like outfield, outfield players have to go in goal because it happens so rarely. You know, position players pitching, we do see that like fairly often but most teams have plenty of backup goalies and the few times that you do see someone have to play like an outfield have to play it's usually just in stoppage time or right at the end if, if someone gets injured late on after all the subs have been used so this really you know mike mcgee's crowning moment as a fan favorite and you know i i talked about it. he go he goes to the fire afterwards comes back to the galaxy for one for one last year Got called up to the U.S. national team once, but unfortunately got food poisoning and 
couldn't play. Almost got called up to play for, for Ireland, but now he uh, owns a uh, an alcohol and hand sanitizer place. I guess there's so- oh, I you need alcohol to make hand sanitizer, so like. That's pretty weird. That's one of the weirder, like, two things that you can sell. That's like how Yamaha makes motorcycles and also pianos. So it's it's Sneaky Fox Spirits and Sneaky Clean Hand Sanitizer. They sell okay, so it's two different hand- brands. Okay, so it's not like it's not like Squeaky Hand Sanitizer and Spirits. It's not it's one under one. Um- it's under one um- umbrella. But he just decided to make hand sanitizer like during the pandemic to repurpose the, their oh uh, this is a recent development yes. oh okay this yes. is because we live in a dystopia for the last two years got yes. you got you yes. got you Sne- got yes you. sneaky fox th- who did vodka and other spirits contracted out with a local distiller to shift the focus from making vodka to sneaky clean hand sanitizer to help uh give to first responders in chicago early in the early in the pandemic and now they are just Sneaky Fox Spirits and Sneaky Clean Hand Sanitizer. Fuck yes, Mike McKee. That is a good pivot. Way to go. That's all I have to say. Fuck yeah. He's an innovator. Way to adjust. Listen, listen, when the world stops for a horrible virus that we never would have thought could actually happen, he pivots to hand sanitizer. When the two goalies are knocked out, he pivots to being a goalie. The man sees opportunity and strikes. When the world hands you lemons, make hand sanitizer out of your liquor. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Love Mike McGee. So that 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 is that is my guy. That is that is Mike McGee. I was I, I wasn't sure when I gave this topic if if I was being specific I struggled to word exactly what I was looking for, but just fucking phenomenal. Phenomenal job across the board, I think, for all three of us. I think all three of these guys are are fantastic. And something that I want to say I really appreciate about this is we all found moments. I know that some of us had thought about some people who maybe found themselves in more terrible situations. And that's not to say that there was not some sadness in some of our guys. I mean, I brought a guy that almost died twice. But the moment that we wanted to celebrate was a reflection of what moments can come of uh, desperation, perhaps, or uh, if not desperation, just random chaos. Sometimes you have to fucking throw out your utility infielder on the mound. Sometimes you got to throw out your midfielder in the fucking goal. Sometimes everybody else that's in the race just crashes. And these victories would be celebrated. There shouldn't be any kind of like lame, oh, that only happened because of this fluke thing. So who gives a shit? Everything's a fluke thing. Like, Kawhi Leonard landed on Zaza Pachulia's foot once, and it derailed the Spurs dynasty for who knows how long. Everything's a fluke in sports. And these are some flukes that were dope as shit. That's what's beautiful about sports. And that's why my my favorite simple phrase that is always said in sports is, that's why they play the games. Mm -hmm. You say on paper that this is how it should go, this is what will happen. But at the end of the day, none of us know shit, and that's why we keep coming back. Because we never know what's going to happen. It's the only unscripted drama. Yeah, so fuck you, Todd McShay, and your tweet about how Ohio State should still be in the playoff over Cincinnati because they have a better team that's more fun to watch. Yeah, they lost two games. Fuck them. Unfortunately for Todd McShay, the games matter, and the results matter. So, here's what I'm going to say. All three of these guys are great. Again, Wilson Valdez bringing in the position player pitching revolution. 
even if it happens more frequently now, even if it's lost a little bit of its luster, it's still magical every time a position player takes the mound. So that's great. Stephen Bradbury. Who knew that that guy is legitimately the greatest winter Olympian uh, in the history of Australia? It just, I think, goes out to point sometimes, you know, the closed-mindedness that we approach international sports with. Like, we don't know the incredible, inspiring stories that all of these other nations are rooting for sometimes. And sure, yeah, NBC broadcast will try and do a little bit, but he's a hero to them. And that's great. You know, why be bitter about that? All that being said... There was a moment during your speech, Xavier, where I knew Mike McGee had won. Like, there was a point where there was no further discussion over who won this week. And it was when Mike McGee said, I want to be the guy. <laughs> he went to up the to the coach. In the moment that we discussed as the foundational theme for a week, he went up and he said, I want to be the guy. And I'm sorry, if someone asks for it, I think I'm in no position to deny it to them. It has to be Mike McGee. He was the closest guy to Bruce Arena. He just was the guy that was available at that moment. And look, both of these other guys are fully deserving, but Mike McGee wants to be the guy. And I, I'm sorry, I have to hand it to him. The image I, of him in a, a six foot four goalies outfit with oversized gloves is also very, very good because he looks tiny in the net and he looks terrified out of his mind for almost that whole game. But then he just comes up with a fantastic save right at the end to make sure that they do not lose that game. It's very, I, I highly recommend looking up the highlights of Mike McGee and Nett because you can tell how much of a fish out of water he is and how happy everyone is after that game is over and they haven't lost. Go Mike McGee. I'm all, I'm all for it. Wilson Valdez will be the hombre this week, but we're here for the guy. Mike McGee. Well, and, and the good news is as we approach next week, the 10th episode of this show, we have decided to revisit, or as Diaz so eloquent. Relitigate. Some of these guys will be having our first ever relitigation. And so we will certainly be able to rediscuss. You know, I, I, Wilson Valdez, Stephen Bradbury, both, I think, notable guys to consider in the future. And there are certainly many other people who have not been inducted yet that also deserve some second thoughts. But for this week, for this moment right now, welcome to the Hall of Guy, Mike McGee. Our first soccer player, I think, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I do believe so. Yeah. So welcome, Mike McGee, to the Hall of Guy. And that's, I think, all we have to remember that guy. I would like to take a moment on the way out for us to recognize our very favorite college football player, maybe ever, at least since Lamar Jackson, the Mountain West Special Teams Player of the Year, still currently on pace to set the single-season record for a punting average at, I believe, 51.9. Although, what a year it's been. Three of the top five punting averages all time are this season. But at the top, one name stands alone. And it is San Diego State University's own Matt Ariza, the 12-1 San Diego State University. It is kind of crazy to think if they'd beaten Fresno State, like, would they be making the college football playoff? Almost certainly no. Would there be some people very loudly insisting that they deserve a shot at it? Absolutely yes. Three of them um, are right here. Yeah, no, we'd be uh, screaming at the top of our lungs, but instead we will quietly, with their 12-1 record, just remind you that Matt Ariza is is incredible. Um, also, so Cincinnati better be in if they win. I don't care if Oklahoma State wins too. If There's you are the number four and you beat a ranked team and are still in your in your championship game and are still yeah. undefeated, you should not be dropped out of the four spot. I'm sorry, Pokes. You had a chance to go undefeated, and you did not. 
but maybe Alabama can just lose by two touchdowns and we can have both Cincinnati are, and Oklahoma State and be very happy about that. They are currently ranked four. I do not think there's any fundamental way that if they win their game, they don't make it. Like they're not. Oh, you, if Alabama wins or loses by like a point or two and Oklahoma State wins by two touchdowns, three touchdowns, I can easily, easily see it go Georgia, Michigan, Alabama still at three, and then Oklahoma State. And if that happens, I will riot and go down to Dallas and yell at everyone in the college football playoffs commission. In a just world, you are right, James. College football is not a just world, as we've seen so many examples of just very recently. Brian Kelly, unbelievable. Don't need to get started on it. But yeah, college football is a very unjust, unlevel. Alabama had a two-point conversion competition to end their game against a 500 team in stayed number three. Here's what I'll say. I don't disagree in the slightest that uh, they do not want Cincinnati to be in the college football playoff and that they are praying that Cincinnati loses the final game to save them any kind of having to reason with it. That being said, I don't believe that they ever would have ranked them above five if they were going to remove them from it with an undefeated record because they know that it would then involve them being screamed at for a very unnecessarily long period of time. They would have just left them at five forever. I would have bought that. I could, you could have totally convinced me they would do that all season. But they moved it up. They're not going to move it down. They don't want to welcome that shitstorm unless they lose, in which case they very much want to welcome that shitstorm. Well, let's go Cincinnati. I already hate Houston because they kept Temple from the Peach Bowl one year. Yes, Temple, if they had won one single game, would have made the Peach Bowl six years ago, which is insane to think about because no other G5 team was ranked. And if Temple had beat Houston in Houston, they would have been the only one. So screw you, Houston. Let's go Cincinnati. Blow them out. Leave, leave no doubt. I want to see the Bearcats play Georgia. Well, hey, yes, there you go. That's that's the college football corner that we've developed all of a sudden. <laughs> but go Cincinnati. Go Matariza. We love you, Matariza. And go home. Stop listening to this. Do something else. You've been listening to us for more than an hour at this point. My name's James. I'm Xavier. I'm Diaz, and as Hubie Brown once said, now here's a guy. <laughs> <laughs>